Now, if you've been with us, you know that we've been in the book of Romans, and um, over the next couple weeks, as we're leading up to the, um, as we're leading up to Easter, um, I decided that we would uh, look uh, over the next couple weeks in the narrative that John gives us about the Passion story. And, and I thought that we would begin early as we prepare for Easter and look in the book of John and start here as, G, as Mary anoints uh, Jesus' feet um, uh, to prepare our hearts, to prepare us uh, for the celebration that is coming. Now, as, as we come to this, this is a very interesting passage to me, and, and the more that I studied, the more... Um, I just became amazed and uh, burdened, and um, uh, so this, take, this sermon took on many different forms, but I, I want to begin by walking you through this narrative so that you understand what's going on, and then we're, we're going to look at um, some of the contrasts that are in this story. John is very careful in his writing of this narrative to, to put a lot of contrasts in here, and we're going to look at some of them. We could spend actually a couple of hours looking at all of them, but we're just going to look at some of them this morning. But first, I want you to see the setting and what is going on here. In, in verses 54 through 57, it gives us the setting. And it says, Therefore Jesus no longer walked uh, publicly. Jesus was no longer walking publicly because He had raised Lazarus from the dead and the Jews were incensed and looking to kill Him. And so Jesus had uh, retreated. And what was interesting is that he had retreated just in time that the Passover was taking place. It says the Passover of the Jews was near. Now, if you remember from the Old Testament, the Passover, uh, the Passover story was given to us in Exodus chapters 11 and 12. And this was the last of the plagues uh, that took place in Egypt uh, from which after this, they let uh, the, the Jews go. And if you remember, the Passover was, I think, one of the most extreme plagues. This was where um, that it, it, for all who didn't mark their doorpost with the blood of the Lamb, their firstborn child was killed. And the Jews were told every year to celebrate this Passover to celebrate what God did to deliver them from slavery and from bondage. And in fact, one of the things that's interesting about the Passover, if you look at the account in Exodus, it's that no foreigners were to take part in the Passover celebration unless, unless they were cleansed and became circumcised and, be, and therefore be, became part of the Jewish nation. So this took place year after year. And in the book of John, we have three times that in Jesus' ministry that we see John pointing out that the Passover uh, was taking place. And so part of this was this purification period. And so the Jews were going to Jerusalem before Passover in order to purify themselves. And this was a very, very large gathering. In fact, the first time we see the Passover in the book of John in John's account, is when Jesus went to the temple and cleansed it because when Jesus saw, as the Jews were there to purify themselves, that they were defiling the house of God by the selling of animals for the Passover. 
So, during this time of Passover, the Jews were to be looking back to God's faithfulness to deliver them. And so that was the setting. That's what was taking place. And notice there is a tension. There's a tension. If we were to look back in chapter 11, verses uh, 45 to 48, right after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, we see, starting in verse 45, Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary, therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priest and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And so they conspired, in verse 53, to kill Jesus. And not only this, but we read a minute ago in 1157 that it was almost like there was a hit taken out on Jesus that they were to report. If anybody saw Jesus, they were to report it to the authorities so that they could come and seize him. Now, this tension between Jesus and the Pharisees runs all throughout John's Gospel. And I want to just point out a couple of places just so that you understand uh, the veracity with which uh, this tension was was building. In in chapter 7, first in verse 25, it says, So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? In verse 32 in chapter 7, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priest and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Then in chapter 8, towards the end of the chapter, in verse 59, therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Again in chapter 10, verse 31, and And then in verse 39, verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And then in verse 39, therefore they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. What we see is that this tension had been building, and here, here, as the Passover is at hand, the tension is just rabid. Because on one side you have the Jews and the Pharisees and and the high priests who are wanting to seize Jesus and to kill Him. And on the other side, you had this group of people who had seen all these signs and these wonders and they had heard of this Jesus and they had heard of this man who raised a dead man to life. And there, there was all this talk going on surrounding the Passover. So the tension was high. Jesus was the talk of the town. And what they were asking themselves is, what will he do? So Jesus, chapter 12, verse 1, Jesus, therefore, six days before Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. I I love the way John writes. He he doesn't let us uh, get out from under the reality of the situation where he says, Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so Bethany, where Lazarus and Mary and Martha were, were about two miles from Jerusalem. And so Jesus, at his, he had set his gaze on Jerusalem, 
to go to his death stops in Bethany in the house of Lazarus. And what we have take place is that Mary and Martha and the household uh, made him supper. Verse 2, they made him supper there. And Martha, this was her nature, was serving. But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Now, just, just a side note. One of the things that's interesting that John does here is um, it, he makes sure, not only with Lazarus, but with Jesus also, that, that we understand that these miracles actually took place. Nobody was denying the resurrection of Lazarus, right? In fact, it was because of Lazarus they wanted to kill Jesus. And notice what John does. John not only tells us that Lazarus was there, and it was, it was the reason that they, Martha and Mary had made Jesus supper, but it says that Lazarus was there reclining at the table, eating with Jesus. It, it recalls to my mind later in John, do you remember what happens with the disciples when they, they're out fishing and they see Jesus and they come to shore, what they do? They eat with Jesus. This is no hoax. This is no phantom. This is a real resurrection. Lazarus was raised from the dead, just like Jesus was raised from the dead. They, people were there, and they saw. Then what takes place in the house is, is just this beautiful scene. You have Mary. And, and notice again, John is careful here. Takes a pound a very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. This pound of nard, this pound of perfume we learn from Judas in a moment was worth 300 denarii. That was roughly a year's wage for a laborer during these times. A very costly thing. This was a big deal. Mary doing this, Mary pouring this out on Jesus was a huge deal. Not only that, but we see that Mary lets down her hair, which was not done by women in public, and we see that she's wiping the feet of Jesus. Now, I think there's... In all four Gospels we have a, an account of a woman wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. Now, I'm not going to go all into the details of this. If you want to look it up, that would be great, and I think you'll come to the same conclusion. It's pretty evident that Luke's account of the woman wiping Jesus' hair is a different thing, a, a different scenario that happened. It's pretty evident if you, if you read the narratives. But in but when you look at Matthew and Mark, there are so many details that, that, are, that are the same that this is the same event. Now, what's interesting, when you look at these two accounts, there are some differences. And when we see differences in the gospel accounts, it's important to look at those and say, what is going on? And so just for a moment, just for a moment, I want you to notice something in Mark that I think is extremely important. In Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. And I'm going to read through and just highlight what I want you to hear. Now, the Passover and the unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise we might have a riot of the people. 
while he was at Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it, notice this, over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her, but Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. For you will always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can go do good to them, but you do not always have me. Notice in verse 8. In verse 3, it says she anointed her head. In John, we have the anointing of the feet. And notice what Jesus says in verse 8. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. I think what we see and what is obvious when we look at the accounts in the Gospels, that whatever Mary did to Jesus, she anointed his whole body. And what John gives us is this act of Uh, submission of of her being at his feet and wiping her feet, his feet with her hair, that the whole body had been anointed. And this is why I think John points out that the whole house smelled of this fragrance. One commentator notes this. Her act of love and worship was public, was spontaneous, was sacrificial, was lavish, Personal and unembarrassed. Jesus called, in a good, Jesus called it a good work in Matthew and Mark and both commended her and defended her. So we have at this same time this, this, this just act of worship by Mary. And she's not aware of what she's doing, but this is, Jesus tells us she is preparing my body for my burial of what's to come just a few days later. But the story doesn't stop there. As Mary is doing this, notice you have Judas. And Judas is saying, why are you doing this? Notice notice what John points out again, very specific. He calls Judas, not just Judas, but Judas Iscariot. One of his disciples. And just in case you don't understand who this man is, who was intending to betray him. And Judas says, why don't we, why are you doing this? Why didn't you sell this perfume and give it to the poor? And he didn't say this because he cared about the poor. But in verse 6, we learn that he said this because he cared about money. And then to end this section, before the triumphal triumphal entry, we have that the crowd's learned where he was, and they came to see him, and they came to see Lazarus. And we know that the chief priests were planning on putting um, Lazarus to death also. And so, many believed. And then we have Jesus going into Jerusalem in the triumphant entry. Beautiful story. Interesting detail. There's a lot here to dig into. But one of the things that I find interesting about this account in John is the contrast. And there's two main people that I think we see that John is giving us contrast between these people and 
uh, with Mary, is the first we'll look at, Mary and other people in the story. And we're going to look at that. Then we're going to look at that John contrasts Jesus, and we could have spent a whole lot more time here with the contrast between Jesus and some other symbols and some other people, but we're just going to look at two things in a moment when we get to Jesus. But when we look at Mary, what we're going to see is that Mary saw. But Mary didn't see in isolation who Jesus was and what He was doing. Other people saw as well, but I want you to notice the different conclusions that the other people came to. And first, and because this kind of sets up this narrative, I want to go back to verse 45 and 46 in chapter 11. I want you to notice something because I think John is giving us a clue here in how he wants us to read this text. Lazarus had just been raised from the dead. And notice, notice the contrast. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary. So we have many Jews coming to Mary. They saw what he had done and believed. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them of the things he had done. So we have one group that saw, believed, went to Mary. And we have another group that saw, got enraged, and they went to tattle to the Pharisees. Because they knew the Pharisees wanted to seize and kill Jesus. Mary saw and worshipped. The others saw and felt threatened by Jesus. They were enraged. They wanted to get rid of Him. If you noticed earlier when I, when I spoke about the different times in the narrative of John when they wanted to kill Jesus, think about this. They were so enraged by these things that Jesus was, were, these things that Jesus was doing that they picked up stones to kill Him right there on the spot. In chapter 8, when you have the blind man that Jesus healed, that everybody knew this man was blind from birth, he comes into the synagogue, what do the Pharisees do? They kick him out of the synagogue. They saw that he could see. It wasn't a question of something had happened, but instead of worship and awe, when they saw, they were angered. They saw and they despised him. It was the exact opposite of worship. The second contrast that I want you to see when it comes to Mary is with Mary and Judas. When Mary, when Judas, when Jesus came to Mary's house, notice what she did. She considered all that she was and all that she had. as needing to go to Him, Him whom all worship and glory is due. So she lets down her hair, and in this day and in this time, that could be interpreted in very bad ways. But all that she had was going to Him, and she wipes His feet with her hair in an act of service. And worship to this man. 
It reminds me of David. Do you remember what David did when he found out that his sins were forgiven? Ran through the streets naked. (laughs) That's not going to be part of our worship um, this Easter. But what you see, and you see the same thing in Mary here, is this idea of this, what we would call reckless abandonment of worship and adoration of worship. Not only physically, but she takes this very expensive perfume and she pours it all over him. The cost was not even in her mind because it couldn't even compare to the worth that she saw in this man. Do you see the contrast? If you have Mary doing this, and what do you have Judas doing? Judas saw all the miracles. Judas was with Jesus from the beginning. And notice what Judas was doing. Instead of giving himself and giving of his things and his life in worship, Judas was taking. Jesus was a means to a different end for Judas. Judas was robbing the money bag. So much so that what happens when a higher bidder comes along? When a higher bidder comes along, Judas betrays Jesus. At the core of Judas, Judas was worshiping Judas, and he was worshiping money, and he was worshiping the things of this earth. What a difference that the different ways of seeing makes. We could go on, but for time's sake, let's look at some of the contrast in this narrative when it involves Jesus. First, the thing that I want you to see, I think it's just very interesting that right before Jesus goes to his death, that he comes where Lazarus was and he reclines at the table with Lazarus and he eats with him. And I think there's something going on here that John is wanting us to know because at the end of this narrative, it says that they sought Lazarus to kill him. And what you need to know, and we don't have the account of um, the, the final death of Lazarus, but... What we know is that both Lazarus and Jesus died and rose from the grave. But what we see and what John tells us is Lazarus could be killed again. He would eventually die, meaning that Lazarus, and what we see here is that Lazarus had no power over death. Lazarus was at the mercy of sickness Lazarus was at the mercy of others who were trying to kill him. And Lazarus ultimately was at the mercy of death and would one day die again because Lazarus was still under the curse that we're all under, the curse of Adam, where we will all one day die. Now, mark this. This man who had been raised up from the dead, who will die again, was reclining at the table of a man of a man who had the power over death. 
Lazarus was reclining at the table with a man who raised him from the dead. Lazarus was at the table with the man who had the power over sickness and disease and who was not under the curse, but he chose to die. Nobody took his life from him. He chose to die and he paid our penalty so that he could take on our death so that we would not be under the curse forever. And Jesus could have stopped it. And Jesus will never die again. And because of Him, once we die and are living with Jesus, we will never die again as well. The death He died, He died for all who believe in Him so that we could be one with the Father. Lazarus' death was a sign that pointed to something. Jesus' death was an effectual event that created the greatest reality of all. He took on our sin and He took on our shame so that we could be united with Him in His death, united with Him in His resurrection, so that we could be at peace with God and have eternal life. The contrast here is just mind-blowing to me. The second thing that I want you to see here is that this whole interplay between uh, what's going on with the Passover and that contrasted with Jesus. Notice in verse 55 of chapter 11, the Passover of the Jews was near and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. And I want to ask a question. We have to be careful here, so don't fall asleep within the next two or three minutes. Because you could hear me wrong. And it may be longer than two or three minutes. So stay awake for a little while. Did Jesus need to purify himself? Now think about this. Think about this. And I don't know what the Jews... The Jews would have said yes, I think. And we could, we could debate, but it's a pointless debate because you'll see where I'm going and the answer is no but just, just hear me out here, that we have an account of a woman who had a blood disorder who would have been considered unclean and anyone who came in contact with her would be considered unclean. We have this woman with a blood disorder that does what? She touches Jesus. Jesus healed a leper. I think many Jews would have considered this, would have made him unclean. The whole idea of rolling away of the stone and him saying, Lazarus, come forth. In many Jews' mind, might have made him unclean. And certainly, we see in the book of John, one of the things that Jesus gets in trouble for is the stuff that he does on the Sabbath. Brothers and sisters, when I was in Indianapolis this last week, we heard a, uh, one of the messages we heard was from Tripoli. And I'd never heard it put like this before, but... He kind of said that Jesus was like soap. Meaning, Jesus didn't get defiled by these things. When these people came in contact with Jesus, they didn't get defiled. He didn't get defiled. They got clean. Do you understand what's going on here? Jesus had no need to go and purify Himself because He was the one who purifies. 
He was the one who purifies. The second thing that I want you to see about Jesus in Passover is remember that part of to do with Passover was the sacrifice of a lamb. And it was representative looking back of God passing over uh, the sins, passing over the judgment of, of God's mercy. And this had to be, re- be repeated year after year after year. And so you had many, 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 many Jews filled Jerusalem in order to go there to take part in this and to sacrifice and to, to do this year after year after year. And notice, at the beginning of the book of John, when we have John the baptizer out in the wilderness, when he sees Jesus, do you remember what he says? Behold, the what? The Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. His death was sufficient because He was the perfect, spotless, sinless sacrifice. And after the death of Jesus, there was no more need for the Passover. Jesus did it. You say, Lewis, are you sure? Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter... You don't have to turn there. But 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump. Just, notice this, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, notice what it calls Him, Paul calls Him, Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. And Paul, in stating this, this was in the middle of the sexual immorality that was going on at Corinth. Paul, in stating this, is saying, hey, do the right thing. You've been cleansed. Jesus Christ has been crucified for you. You are new. You have been cleansed. And notice, he doesn't just keep it in the past, but he says, in in bringing this up, what he's telling them is not only have you been cleansed in the past, but he is also your future cleansing. There is no more need for another sacrifice because of what Jesus has done. I love the song and I love the line. Guilty, vile, helpless we, spotless son of God was he, he. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah. What a savior. John, John is drawing our attention to the fact that Jesus changes everything. Now, when I was talking about Mary a minute ago, and I think what John is wanting us to see in this gospel is the contrast with Mary and some of these folks, and what we see with Mary is that Mary sees in a different way than Judas sees. Mary sees in a different way um, than the Pharisees see. In my prayer this morning, my prayer this morning is that as you are here, that you may see differently as well. John spends 12 chapters giving us signs and wonders that Jesus does to point his readers to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. He begins his gospel by saying that Jesus came into the world, but his own received him not. His own, 
the Jews, had their own agenda and they missed who this Jesus was. That, that in their own agenda, they wanted freedom from Rome and what they missed was the freedom from the punishment of their sin and their guilt and their shame. What they wanted was their own national sovereignty and they missed a relationship with the sovereign of the universe. How do you see this morning? Now, I am doubting here this morning we have any among us who are saying that they hate Jesus. I'm doubting there's any here this morning that if Jesus walked in would go find a stone. But, there may be some here this morning who views Jesus more like Judas viewed Jesus than what Mary viewed Jesus. So when they look at the Bible and when they look at Jesus and when they look at all the things that He has done, that they say, oh, this man could be beneficial to me. He might be useful. He may help me to get some personal gain from this. So what I want to pray this morning is that if that's where you are, my prayer is that God may open up the eyes of your heart this morning and by looking at this text that you may see Jesus for who He really is. And so what happens in your heart is that you become a worshiper that looks a whole lot more like Mary than it does Judas. And if this morning, maybe as you've been hearing this text and as you have looked at this text uh, with us, with me this morning, you may realize and God may have opened the eyes of your heart this morning and the, the evidence of that would be twofold and one of those would be this. One of those would be, that's not me and that's a problem. I think that's evidence of the Spirit working. And the second thought would be this, I want to be that. And if that's you this morning, if that's you this morning, I would ask you to come and to grab Gary or myself or one of the elders, and we would love, we would love to talk with you about that. The other thing we see here, that is John is, uh, John is taking us through his gospel towards the death, burial, and resurrection, the Easter narrative, is John is taking us there uh, John is contrasting Jesus with all of these shadows. And, and there's a quote, it's, it's a lengthy quote, but it's good, so just hang with me from uh, uh, St. Augustine. And here's, here's what he says. Talking about, but the celebration was a shadow of the future, and why a shadow? It was a prophetic intimation of the Christ to come. A prophecy of Him who on that day was to suffer for us, so that the shadow might vanish and the light come, that the sign might pass away and the truth be retained. The Jews therefore held the Passover in a shadowy form, but we in the light. For what need was there that the Lord should command them to slay a sheep on every day of the feast, save only because of Him it was prophesied? 
He is led as a sheep to the slaughter. The doorposts of the Jews were sealed with the blood of the slaughtered animal. With the blood of Christ, with the blood of Christ are our foreheads sealed. And that sealing, for it had real significance, was said to keep away the destroyer from the houses that were sealed. Christ's seal drives away the destroyer from us if we receive the Savior into our hearts. But why have I said this? Because many have the doorpost sealed while there is no intimate abiding within. They find it easy to have Christ's seal in the forehead and yet at the heart refuse admission to His Word. Therefore, brethren, I have said and I repeat it, Christ's seal driveth from us the destroyer. If only we have Christ as our intimate of our hearts. I have stated these things lest anyone's thoughts should be turning on the meaning of these festivals of the Jews. The Lord therefore came as it were to the victim's place, that the true Passover might be ours when, when we celebrated His passion as the real offering of the Lamb. One of the reasons that I bring this up, or several of the reasons that I bring this up, is this. Number one, for those of you whose hearts have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, who have accepted Christ as your own, that this shadow is now a reality for you, one of the things that I want to, several of the things that I want to encourage you to do is number one, as we enter into this Easter season, this is a time of celebration. Let us be people. Let us be people that as we look into God's Word and we see what Christ has done before us, that within us wells up Celebration and joy. So celebrate Easter. Celebrate with your kids. Candy is fine, but it's not the bunny. Celebrate. Celebrate what God has done for us. Secondly, Secondly, as a part of that celebration, as a part of that celebration, let it draw your hearts to the reality that there are those around you whose doorposts on their life have not been sealed and the destroyer will destroy unless the eyes of their hearts are opened and they see who this Jesus is. And so we need to pray And we need to speak the gospel to them. It's the gospel that opens up the heart of man. And lastly, lastly, I think when we, and I'm I'm stretching this a little bit, so because I say that, it makes it okay, right? But I would ask you to, and this is, a, this is not a once a year thing, but I would ask you to do this. Um, I would ask you to make it a daily ritual in your heart, in your life, that when you open up God's Word, to pray that you see Jesus and you see Him in such a way that it results in worship, 
Isn't that the reason for open up God's Word? Worship? So I would pray. The goal isn't to, to, to imitate Mary or to imitate David or those sort of things, but the goal is that in the way that God has made you, for you to see this Jesus and for you to worship Him and to worship Him in ways that are all of you, that are costly. So can you do that with me? Can we be a people who not just at Easter, but at all times sets our hearts and minds on praying this? Beloved, I would pray, and I pray for you often as a body. I pray for you often as a body that you would know how much God loves you. And sometimes when I share this with people, sometimes when I share this with people, do you know what the common most, uh, the two most, two most common things that I hear? One may be you don't know what I've done. And to that, there's an easy answer, is that you're saying that the death of Jesus can't cover what you have done, and most people begin to back away at that point. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, God loved you enough to send His Son to die on the cross for you, and He loves you. The the second one is this, and I want to be sensitive here, the second one is, you don't know what I'm going through. And I want to be sensitive to that. But what I think the Bible would help us draw our attention to is that sometimes when problems and things come into our lives, one of the things that we do is that we look at these problems and they, they become bigger than the biggest problem that we had if we were a believer. If you are a Christian you have great reason to rejoice. What I find fascinating here, we don't know what happened to Lazarus. Lazarus could have very easily been killed soon after this. The disciples would all be killed for following Jesus. What I find interesting is that instead of looking at that as their greatest problem they look to Jesus who really did solve their greatest problem so brothers and sisters I pray that during this time of Easter that we would look to the cross and realize not only how much God did love us but how much he does love us that even in the midst of the problems that you have. Hallelujah, what a Savior has made a way. And that this world, this world, will one day fade and we will spend eternity with our Heavenly Father celebrating Easter like we were supposed to. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this passage. God, I pray that Lord, you would challenge all of us, that your word would challenge all of us to to see your son and the work he did on the cross. That we would see that rightly. God, sometimes our sin, 
our brain, our faulty brains, want to take and pervert this gospel. But God, let us see this gospel. See your Son who took away our sins, who made it possible for us to have a relationship with you. God, let us see this and rejoice on a daily basis. But God, let it also make us rejoice this time of year where we set aside this time to really rejoice and to really celebrate. God, we love you. We worship you. In your son's name, amen.